Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. This is your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis. I'm really excited today to have a truly special conversation um, with Helkenberg. Helken and I went to the same high school, but not at the same time. She's a little bit younger than I am. I am really excited about both the fact that Helken reached out, but so what she wants to talk about. So Helken, thank you so much for being here on the podcast this morning. Thank you. I'm really excited for our conversation today. So tell our listeners what it was that you were interested in sharing. Sure. So I, I thought it was a really interesting topic and something that I feel can extend into so many arenas of life and really doesn't get acknowledged in, in most of them. I identify as a woman and I work in technology. I've been CEO for multiple companies and I'm in these leadership roles And I remember for whatever reason, when I saw your post, it prompted me to think of a really early memory, my very first manager's role. I think I was 25, maybe. It was this moment in time where I was a newly minted manager. I had teams that had all the day ago been my peers that I was now leading and they were heading out for drinks. And I had this moment at my desk where I realized that it was best for them that I didn't join them. That they were going to have socially to vent, to do whatever they needed to do that I no longer could participate in as a peer. And I remember it just, it seared in my brain. And I remember there was a moment of loss because I was still very young and my office place was also a source of a lot of my social life. And, but I also understood to be part of my responsibility. I could go, but I knew so many bosses that always did that and kind of frankly cross boundaries and conversations they shouldn't have been in and. I just made a decision that, you know, I I could go maybe for five or 10 minutes, but I'd also deliberately make the choice to bow out politely and be somewhere else. And and that was a moment of loss for me, Um, pretty young in my career. And there's a thread through my career around that sort of continued loss and grief as I've continued to, to frankly, to ascend and to continue to be in leadership and especially in my leadership roles as CEO, where I am the top person in terms of responsibility and authority with entire teams. So I was curious to explore that with you because you're an expert in this. This is something I only sometimes, you know, dabble in or think about, you know, in the morning when I'm getting my coffee. But I think it's it's an exciting conversation to have because frankly, I haven't heard it. I don't know yeah. if you have, but I haven't heard this conversation. And I want to put it out there in case it's helpful to anyone else who's either considering leadership or is in leadership just to feel seen and heard. Oh, I love it. I mean, I really love it. So I work in the DC area and often my clients are women of, you know, ascending substance, right? That they are climbing up the ladders of their organizations, public, private, and a lot of what they're navigating are their gender roles, right? What are the double standards? You and I know that those exist without a lot of training, right? So a lot of people ascend into management positions with absolutely no management training whatsoever, which is crazy to me because management training is an entire industry that people pay lots of money for. And what ends up happening is they pay when things go to shit rather than ahead of time. And exactly what you're describing, which is what happens to my need for connection? What happens to my need for support in my world? I have two other therapists that are extraordinary therapists that are well-trained and trained similarly to me, but one works with children, primarily adolescents, and the other works with couples, both of which I'm trained in, but I don't love that work. And we get together every Monday. 
we get together every Monday to talk about who we are as like women in the world who are trying to raise our families. We get together to talk about, oh, there's a new app that will help us with our billing. But part of that is because we're siloed. A lot of it is because there is so much disconnection around the idea of who do you want to be in running your own business. Now, the difference between my field and your field is there's like nine male therapists in the world. So women, you know, we overrun the world of therapy. It's difficult to find a male therapist. In your world, I imagine the percentages of women at that high level must be tiny. It's, it's extremely small. I have a couple stats in my head that aren't necessarily relevant specifically to tech CEOs. I think actually the numbers, at least in my industry right now, is it's six to 8% of CEOs are women. I know in the VC world, which is for those that aren't familiar, it's, it's a funding source for many early stage tech companies. The representation within venture capital firms is about 12% women. And then the actual dollars awarded to women-led companies, I think is somewhere between two and 3%. So it, it's bad. <laughs> I don't feel like you need to, to know or like math that much to see, like that's that's not good. So yeah, my, my world is predominantly men. It's predominantly white and, and exclusively straight. And so that has been a bit of the burden of the role. I can talk more a bit about my background, but some of the, the, you know, role I have in a company is to lead the company itself, but also to liaise with the board and then also the investor groups. And those boards and those investor groups are oftentimes exclusively white, male, and straight. And some of the loss that I feel, I know you and I had talked about this ahead of time, but it's, it isn't so much that I've actively experienced a loss, meaning that I had something that I then no longer had, but it's more the total absence of mm -hmm. having peers and having conversations with individuals who I really identify with. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes I've given advice, you know, discussions with my board, discussions with investors, even peer CEOs who are men. And I can tell in that conversation, there are such good intentions. I mean, there are, there are good people, you know, who are truly trying to help and be peers, but there's so much of what they say that isn't applicable to my world. I can't nor won't execute in the same way. And, and there's, there's a sadness around that sometimes, because it's, it's already isolating when you're in leadership or it, it's at least at times lonely, but then to not have that camaraderie that you're talking about, that connection on that truly sort of intimate level where you, you feel like you have a lot in common with someone that's hard and it, it does wear, wear on me, but I will say, and maybe this is a bit masochistic, but I flip that actually into my motivation as to why I keep going mm. because I refuse to have my kids end up in these same situations or your children. I just, it doesn't feel right. I mean, there's no reason women shouldn't be in the roles that I'm in. It's not for lack of trying. It's because the systems are there that prohibit it. And so I'm trying in my own way and with my own sphere of influence to change that and break a path. And it's given me a really deep respect for all the women before me, because I already have more access and more authority and more ability to do and execute in my roles than, than women, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And it's still hard. It's still really, really hard. So I don't know if there's a word for that kind of grief, but like, it's the loss. It's, it's the loss of the relationship that never was. Yeah. So the world of grief does what it can to sort of help us encompass all of the different ways in which we feel the varying sort of like the Inuits have words for snow. And we try to 
find the right vocabulary. And I feel like what you're describing falls somewhere in between the idea of ambiguous loss or disenfranchised grief. Disenfranchised grief is where people don't believe you're entitled to grieve. So, you know, if your if your son was a, a school shooter and also died or, you know, to some degree suicide in general or drug overdose or just something where there is shame, there's energy out in the world and I have to protect myself against people's reactions, right? If you were having an affair and your lover died, like just something where I just can't sit back and relax and say to people come close because just my invitation for them to come close, they're going to miss me because I can't reveal all the information or they're going to have feeling and judgment maybe about me. So I think, I think that's probably the closest of what you're talking about. There's also this thing called ambiguous loss, which is it's not totally clear what and when you lost it. People have ambiguous loss around the parent that they wish they had when their parent died. You know, my dad was a raging alcoholic, but I'm now that he's dead, I am mourning the idea of ever having a good dad because I can't have that. Or, you know, when women go through menopause and they have this sort of this ambiguous loss around the children that they didn't have, there's millions of different examples, but I think what you're describing kind of falls into those words. And what I would say is if we took the vocabulary to the side, really what I think you're describing is a part of you that is feeling loss at all time, right? And I think if we look to the other communities that sound like they're excluded from the tech industry, which would be anyone with any sort of non-binary gender and maybe also sexuality and all the peoples of all the colors, it sounds like any one of them through any conversation, whether it's over food or vacations or school or family or whatever, that there are ways in which those folks would accidentally feel like, wow, you're not able to sit close to me. You can't see and know me in the way that I like to see and be known so that I can kind of relax. And the reason why that's relevant, I mean, other than that sucks to feel that way, is that when you're in an industry like yours, but I would argue any industry, you don't want a whole lot of defensiveness because defensiveness comes from this back part of your brain, your amygdala is this little walnut shape in the back of your brain that, that it actually expands when you feel afraid. And so when you get very afraid, it expands really quickly and it chokes off the oxygen that goes from the base of your brain up to where your prefrontal cortex is, where you do all your critical thinking. And so like all your tech people are doing all their critical thinking. And, and even from that, mostly on the left side of their brain, right? When you are a person who comes into a room where everybody else feels relaxed, seen and known, invited and accepted, their whole brain is online. They are like fired up, ready to go. They've got their right brain. They've got their left brain. They've got creativity and math. They've got curiosity and analysis. But if you are a person who's coming in and feeling like, I don't know if they're going to like the way I'm dressed. I don't know if that guy's going to make that weird comment that he made yesterday. I don't know if I'm going to be included or excluded from the conversation. And these don't have to be villains. These don't have to be bad people. This is just, that's what I'm com- I'm carrying in. Honestly, you have less brain capacity in that space than other people that are there. It does feel that way because I feel like you've gotten me thinking on a few ways where it shows up. So I think one thing to acknowledge, and frankly, I haven't actually run this by, I, I have like a tiny handful of peers who I cherish 
so deeply because it is such a such a rare role to have any sort of overlap with other people is really, really important. But this is something I haven't actually spoken to them about. But there's also a little bit, I don't know if it's a disenfranchised loss or the ambiguous one, but even in your personal life, when you sit down to a dinner with friends and people are just doing the typical exchange of, you know, oh, you know, how's work going? What's this? I, I do feel often there's a little bit of loss about my ability to just kind of lay out what my actual day-to-day is because there's an while there's a growing acceptance for women in leadership, it isn't the norm, especially in my field. And there's a lack of relatability, frankly, in what I do day to day and what other people do. So I I feel that, and I don't know if I've ever really acknowledged that feeling, but that, that is some, that is a thread that if I look to like, you know, dinners with friends, granted this past year hasn't offered up as many of them as they typically would, but it's still there. Right. You know, you meet up with friends and you act and, you know, and that that's also shown up for me in, in leading a team through through this pandemic. It's been taxing in ways for, for really for every human alive, but in leadership in particular, because people have been more vulnerable to stress and loss and all sorts of things happening. And oftentimes as a woman leader, I feel like one way I lead people through those moments is to offer more of myself. Yeah. And so I've been, and I have my own family and my own things that I was, you know, trying to figure out the, you know, the remote schooling, like every other family in, in the U S and frankly around the world. And it, it was a long year. It was very long in many ways. And, and everyone feels that in a piece, but the, the piece specific to the drain about being a leader in that setting yeah. isn't something that I, I get often to exchange with others. And there, and that's a sort of a, that's part of loss feeling that I, I often have. I, uh, I want to ask you a question, a follow-up question about that. But before I lose this thought, I'm just going to say this, which is there's, you know, there's an element of what you're describing, which I imagine people are relating to it on all different levels, right? Like if you identify as gay and you don't believe that that is something that your workplace can tolerate, the kind of conversations you're going to have at a work dinner when somebody says, oh, do you have kids? feels totally different, right? So I imagine there are many people who are going to be able to say, oh yeah, I get this. Maybe even this is sort of part of life. What I'm thinking about though, is the masculine format around leadership. And I have trouble sometimes with the genderizing of things, particularly because I think our younger generations are doing a really good job of sort of blending everything around like peanut butter and jelly. And I'm very excited to live into that future. But I do think that in boardrooms and executive rooms right now, there are formats like even just the idea of an agenda and bullet points, and we're going to mark ourselves with success by getting through everybody's agenda items fairly. That's a pretty masculine task-oriented concept of, you know, a business meeting, which isn't to say that we don't need to get things done. But when we look at a more feminine side of management, there is more, or it might actually take more time, right? It might be more days. We might say we're having a big retreat or we're going to do this every Tuesday and, you know, for two hours, but it would be more multitask process oriented. There's some science around this. There's other people who write much more articulately than this. But I, what I was thinking is, you know, the way the setup, the setup for this to feel difficult, the setup for the ambiguous loss to be there is so entrenched in the way that people have been 
driving the idea of what it looks like to be an executive for a really long time. I'm curious about how do you navigate it? Like, what are the tools that you use when we look at a word like grief? Grief is sort of like a reaction to something. And so people say, oh, well, your grief is different than my grief. And it's like, well, the grief is not really the noun of it. It's more like the grieving. What are we, what is it describing? What is the loss? And when we look at that and say, yeah, you lost your husband. I lost my job. It's much, I think, simpler to sort of say like, yeah, no, grieving is a response to something that we feel we lost. Not every loss is the same. Of course, we don't need to question that, but we're all entitled to grieve our losses. How do you do it? What do you do with the feeling and the energy? Everybody went out for a drink today and I was invited, but I had to not go, even though part of that sounded really good. And I like my colleagues. That's a really good question. Feel like that's got to be really individual. And I do, by the way, want to circle back to your, and I know it's gendered, but I'm the masculine and fem, feminine energies in leadership, I think, mm-hmm. more so than like, you know, the actual roles of men and women, or those are men and women is something worth talking about. But as far as the the grief and loss around the peer relationships, and I, you bring something great up. Like at, at the end of a day, my day, I don't get to sit at the dinner table and frankly, like vent about someone else, really. I mean, because it all all roads trace back to me. So just a bit about my background. I've been CEO for multiple tech companies and they've been varying sizes from like, you know, zero up to hundred people, multiple countries. I've done all these shiny, you know, great markers of success, grown companies, you know, up to $20 million in revenue and, you know, brought products to new markets. There's all sorts of great things, but but along with that, all that growth, and you know, success by measure of you know financial success for companies, you know, comes wear and tear on me. And yet I don't get to allocate that. I can't say so and so, you know, I can't have that frustration with your boss that you typically have. I'm the boss. <laughs> so if I'm frustrated with something and how it's going, like I'm frustrated with myself. You know, the success is the success of my team. But the failures that occur, I absorb that. I don't look to blame anyone else. Like that, that is squarely on my shoulders and that is my role. So where does that go? That's such a great question because I'm, I'm not sure I yeah. really have any fantastic answers. Like I feel like it's all the typical things you should do to, to ground yourself, right? You know, ground yourself individually, you know, whether it's with some sort of, I don't know, running or something like that, or, you know, making sure you, you eat well or connecting with friends and family. But I will just say that that does get back to the piece where what you're trying to process isn't something that you can directly bring into conversation. And for me, and I know this is different for every individual, but I like to process that way. I'd love to sit and like have coffee with you and be like, oh my gosh, can you believe the thing today? And like, you know, dump about it. And 10 minutes later, I'll be feeling so, so I don't have that. You know, I I luckily have a very supportive partner and he's, he's proven to be that. And I often think that that is, I don't frankly know how I would do it without that because he's been on this journey with me through all these companies and he's, we sort of have shorthand code. He knows what needs to happen. If I have, you know, client or an investor meeting that that comes up last minute late, you know, he's got the kids and he'll handle that. But frankly too, though, that also reduces the amount of time he and I have together um, to have those conversations. And maybe that that's an important thing to also mention, at least U S American companies are often run 
you know, the more you ascend in the ranks, the more you take on, frankly, there's no point at which you have less of a burden. It just shifts and often becomes more and more and more. And then, you know, it's almost laughable to talk about work-life balance, frankly. There's so much pride, especially in the tech world, and just literally sacrificing your entire life to, to your work. And especially the expectation for someone in my role. So I think you ask a great question. And I think it's probably, I would be hard-pressed to find a leader that that legitimately does a great job if they maintain the empathy. Because I feel like what I will point out, I have seen, maybe you've looked into this, but it feels like you can start to quickly see why certain personality types do so well in leadership because you have to be able to shut things off. And so I've seen a lot of individuals, and this is not everyone by any means, but I have seen a lot of individuals who, who truly lack empathy. Yeah, you wrote that. that. You wrote that to me, and I that stopped me in my tracks. I mean, I think the way that you said it is like this is why there's so many personality disordered people in positions of leadership. I think about that with not personality disorders. I'm not trying to like label, but I think about the kind of like my son is a is a goalie, and he's 11, and his team sometimes he gets scored on 11 times in a game, and to be able to get up and face the same guy that just scored on you or to be a pitcher or to play tennis or to be a surgeon, you know, where you have to be able to manage your reactivity. Generally what happens is you learn to kind of not care. You learn to minimize and to sort of push to the back of the bus, that reactivity that's going to say you suck or you whatever. And some of that does distance you from other, if you are pushing to the back of your bus, the sense that, you know, it feels terrible to fail at something or you have to be a leader at something comes to the front of the bus. When someone comes to you with their vulnerability, the likelihood that you're going to be able to hear it or embrace it is very small because you haven't been practicing that. You've been practicing the opposite, which is to push it to the back. However, we want to script, I want to be careful with my language, sort of the gendered the way that leadership runs. But part of what I was thinking when you were talking is that that is, the, you know, the nugget of the question around grief is not if do we have it, but how do we attend to it? Right. And one thing that I believe that I really do know is that while grief itself is an alone process, meaning whatever it is that you are experiencing in your five senses is yours alone. You are a unique individual you are responding to this loss totally uniquely, that we crave some sense of connection with others in order to validate it for ourselves. You know, one thing that I've really come to understand in doing this work is that it is very important that we own our story, that the narrative of our experience makes sense to us. And so when I'm asking people, what is it that you do to grieve these things like as an action? Part of it is, the first part is, what is, how do you get the energy out of your system? Like, what do you do? Do you, do you sing? Do you run? Do you listen to music? Do you cook? Do you garden? What do you do with the burden of the energy? Because that's one place that I see people get in trouble is they don't know how to do that. And so sometimes what you see is people doing really dissociative stuff, which I don't have a problem with disassociation. That's one way, but if it's your only way, you end up with those leaders that are not able to be in the world when someone is having a hard time. They can't tolerate the vulnerability. If you are someone who only disassociates with hard feeling, that's going to be tricky out there in the world. So, and when I say disassociate, I mean like video games, drugs and alcohol, you know, sex all the time, shopping online, that kind of stuff. 
so there's that first piece, which is what do I do with the energy, which I'm always curious to hear, you know, people will tell me stories. Like after my mom died, I started running or my sister and I were estranged and she stopped talking to me. I took a dance class. Like there's, there's, or I started painting. I find that really interesting because I feel like the body kind of knows what it, it has an inkling of what it might need. And some people are better at listening to those inklings, but then there's the second piece, which is what is the meaning of it? What is the meaning that I take of my aloneness and my loss? And to me, it sounds like part of what you are doing in that sort of traumatic loss way that the, the trauma growth is you are going to help the world have a different experience for women in tech. And not everybody is able to do that. Not everybody wants to do it. But I do think the like, what is, what is the meaning of my grief for me? And what, where we get in trauma work, where we're really trying to dig down is like, is the meaning less and worse? What often happens is we get to that moment where we're ready to offload the energy. Maybe we even have, and we get to the meaning part and the meaning part becomes something less than I can't show my true self to others. This environment will never tolerate women you can see how that would cause people to go inward and, and actually for it to do damage. So when I'm looking at people who are grieving, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for where is it folding in on you and doing damage? So maybe part of this conversation is exactly what we're talking about. Maybe this is sort of what you're doing with the grief work, which is speaking outward about it so that people are aware of it. And I I feel like that's where you know, if I had to look at my personal traits and something that I've often been told is a strength of mine is speaking out in areas where perhaps others are hesitant to voice. So I feel like, you know, if this is something I feel comfortable talking about, I do want to put it out there because maybe it, it does start a dialogue for someone else. And frankly, it's also helpful to me to, to put words to it, right? Because I, I want to distinguish between the grief and the, and the loneliness and leadership, but they're very interwoven yeah, with each other. Right. And I feel like, you bring a point about where does that energy go? And I feel like sometimes what you do in intense roles like I have is you actually fold that energy back into your work. Yeah, sure. And I'm not saying that's healthy, but that's where it goes because it's sort of like this drive to keep making it better and get out of this place where you are because you do have these ideas of, of what's on the horizon or over it and want to march there faster. But one thing I wanted to add, and I don't know if it's too small of a piece, but when you were talking about we were discussing the boards and the investor groups and it's, it's all this, it is men (laughs) and masculine energy. And I, you know, a lot of business, especially in, you know, businesses that are driven by us American norms have this standard of command and control and, you know, work to die, you know, put everything in, no loss is too great. You've got to be there. What I think you bring up though, is, even if I wanted to lead a company that way, yeah. I won't be accepted in that way. Yeah. It's just that I'm not perceived that way. I'm not accepted that way. So I've had to have my own leadership style from day one, which I think is a blend of feminine, masculine energies and methodologies. The way I achieve success always has to look different than most of my peers. And knowing that that path is never recognized. Yeah. And maybe it never needs to be in a way, but on, on the other hand, it, it, I know it takes me more effort 
to get places than my male peers because I fundamentally have to work within a system that isn't built for my style of leadership. And my style of leadership, and, and there's actually tons of stats to back it up, works extremely well. There's less turnover, there's higher profits, yeah. there's all these great, wonderful statistics backing up. And I think the irony for me is, is in a world that's so dominated by profits and money, they have these statistics that show that this way is actually better and more profitable. And mm-hmm. yet there's a full resistance to moving to it. There's sort of this illogical barrier. And that's what I hit. And that's where, when you ask, you know, what I do with my energy, when I, when I hit my true deepest grief, I do question like, <laughs> can I take this body blow? You know, because you're, you're right about the energy. And like, I do feel like I take bot, full body blows often to stay in the space, to stay effective, you know, leading yeah. well, keeping my team happy, keeping my clients happy. And it does have a toll and, and it frankly doesn't often feel like there's a lot of places for it to go. Yeah. Um, you always hope when you're an individual in a situation that you're making effective change. What I don't want to do is just to be here and then conclude my role and not have made it more possible for anyone after me. And I don't know how you measure that success because it's so many of us doing all things like this. So I'm hoping like a conversation like this is a piece of it. You know, maybe, you know, you're asking one way I, I know I've found at least some satisfaction is mentoring, channeling, not the negative energy, but some of the learnings out of things to other Um, women or frankly, anyone who's not a white man in tech, trying to help support them coming into the space because people are in the space for luckying. They are extremely talented, extremely intelligent, very capable people. And what I can do is because I'm a white woman, I have been able to get places as you know, we both have these great academic backgrounds, which gives us sort of an easier entree in a lot of places. Even though I still hit barriers, I hit far fewer. And so what I like to do is, is give advice and frankly, just insight more than advice, insight to others as to what they're going to walk into and how to navigate it as best. I know how, from what I've experienced to help them translate that into what they may run into. Unfortunately, it's not fully processing and getting rid of the feelings and moving into a potentially a better feeling, frankly, than grief, but it's a channeling of it but it does take part of me to do that. Like it's not, there's no. Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's ever any difference. I mean, exactly what you're describing. I I like the idea of something being net neutral at the end, but, but I think it's a constant filling up and, and emptying, filling, filling up and emptying, you know, how well are you emptying? And, you know, I, part of, so I work with lots of leaders and, you know, part of what you are describing is something that I've heard so many times, which is like, it's not an accident that they end up in the position of leadership, right? Like that's not random. Their names didn't get picked out of a hat. It's for a constellation of reasons. And for many of the people that I work with who are not in, you know, the obvious, like, why would they be the leader? They're not maybe necessarily the obvious leader. They are the leader for a reason, a specific constellation of reasons, what they're navigating is how do I take the hit and get back up so that I stay in the room, you know? And I find that really humbling because part of me as a therapist is I'm just looking at the individual. And when someone comes and says to me, I am being thrashed and filleted in my leadership position and I'm lonely and I'm doubting myself. 
you know, I'm like, look, nobody's here to be Jesus. Like you don't have to do this job anymore. You can stop doing it. And what I know is there's a reason they're in a position of leadership. And part of that is the calling of the larger stuff, which isn't just about making the widgets or making the dollars or you're changing the policy. Part of it is if I am a black queer man in a space, I might be the first and only for this organization. And I don't want to quit. And I also understand that I am not going to, you know, change everything, maybe even in my lifetime, but I, there's a, there's a calling and there's, and I'm beholden to the truth of it, which is it's important for someone like me to be in the room. And so as spaces are changing, which will be an always and a constant, that sort of burden or what we are beholden to I think also has to be called out because I don't know that everybody walks into an office and feels like they are beholden to something larger than just their own personal experience. And as a therapist, that's a spot that's, and I've talked, you know, I think many therapists would talk about that. I'm lucky enough to love and really care about all of my clients. And I borrow off of that to do the work that I do with them always. And they know that. And it's hard. It's really hard to, to hear, you know, they're not respecting me. They're going around me. I think it's deliberate, I, you know, and not be like, fuck those guys, like go get a different job. I think there's some loss in that, right? Like I think when I was young in the field, I was working with somebody who was in the military. I would go home and just sort of rage at the lack of agency that that person had, had really chosen to, to have in their own life and decision-making. And I remember much older colleagues saying to me, like, I wonder when you're ever going to come to understand that, like, we all don't really have full agency. You know, she was sort of like chuckling at my rage against the machine about it. But I think really what I was doing was grieving, right? Like I was experiencing this blinding explosive energetic loss. So I'm curious for you and and talk about this or not. What is it that you think allows you to be in the space where you can kind of take these waves or hits, which again, I'm not trying to vilify wherever you work now or anywhere that you have ever worked the same way that when people come in and tell me about their families, I'm not vilifying their parents. I'm a parent. We fuck everything up. I'm what I really am is trying to honor your experience that other people, I mean, it's not their job to fix, but it's their job to care that it exists for you. So I'm curious about that. Like, you know, not why not quit, but why not quit? You know, that's such a good question. So I'll answer that. But as you were talking to, I feel like I'd never thought of this, but there is a sense of grief around sort of what could have been like, we all have limited time and we all have things that we prioritize. And with that comes the things you don't do. So for me, like one of the releases I have is I actually, I have my natural style of thinking and the type of work I do, you know, building software, building teams, building revenue is extremely structured thinking all day long, like just incredibly detail oriented, strategic and, and in a way process oriented. And so what I do in my free time is I, I paint, I just turn my brain off and I just paint. And I sometimes wondered, you know, if I had put more time into that earlier in my life, like it's sort of the wonder of like, would this have become my thing? The whole thing, you know, and you just, you don't know. It's, it's the path not traveled. And I don't try, it's not that I get sad about it deeply because I don't know. I didn't, who knows what would have happened, right? Maybe I would have been miserable. <laughs> no idea. Yeah. But there's a little bit of sense of, of 
of loss around the things you, you can't pursue because you're one human and you're trying to do as much as you can, as best you can. But the question of why not quit? I mean, it is, I think any startup CEO who doesn't actually have that in their brain at moments, it is possibly the most challenging, frustrating and illogical work in a way. Like if you look at what you take on, when you take on these roles, like it's a very specific kind of person that does it. They're okay with risk. They're okay with putting it all on the line. They're okay with, you know, blurring all the boundaries and working all the time. You know, there's sort of a, there's a, a kinship I have with other startup CEOs, even if, you know, they're not a woman like myself, because we have that mindset where we can also be very creative. We are always living in the land of what can be because we're pursuing an idea that either doesn't exist or hasn't been done well or whatever it is. And so why not quit? I mean, I think for me, I, you know, you, you have to ask yourself that because you give up so much to be where you are. And I, it's probably a very individual answer. And I, I know for me, I am deeply influenced by the fact that my father was an immigrant to this country. So I grew up in a household at dinner tables where there was a lot of conversation that I identify with other sort of first gen kids that have had these, you know, sort of the gratitude for the food on the table, the gratitude for the access to education, the gratitude for freedom of speech, the gratitude for a lot of things that, you know, shape your thinking pretty early in life. And so I definitely had that nurtured, not, I don't frankly think it was deliberate by anyone in my family. It was just by the sheer topics that were covered as a family. And with that, this is going to sound maybe to pursue something that was solely my passion without the ability to better things for others was complacency mm. and was taking the easy route and was putting mm. to waste the hard work of my family that had sacrificed so much for me to be where I am. So I, get that. I, I get feel that. like that when you talk about that drive of like serving others, like I definitely believe in servant leadership. Like that's my style of leadership is servant leadership. And I feel I don't think obligated is the right word. I do feel driven to yeah. pursue that because I, I do feel capable of withstanding. Yeah, it's a value. And, and it's also, I, I feel a responsibility for it, yeah. frankly. Yeah. Oh God, that's a gorgeous answer to the question. And I'm not sure what I expected. Sometimes I'm like, Oh, I think I know the answer to this question. I just asked that one. Cause it was right out there, but that's such a gorgeous answer to it. And when I relate to my my father's father immigrated and there were a lot of things that we sort of butt heads about. And, and he would say that, you know, you're not the child of an immigrant. And, you know, I think it, I think those things go back to exactly what we're describing, which is, you know, we can get lost and we can feel grief and loss in all of the examples, small and large, where, perspectives are not offered that make sense to us or inherent, right? So one of the reasons, just to loop back to the idea of process-oriented leadership is that's what it allows. It allows me to show you my thinking and to show you, even if it's terrible and wrong, there's always a road less traveled, right? I could have been a painter. Maybe I couldn't have been a painter that was going to make money off my paintings, but being able to look at the different facets of my personality, my curiosity, my, my creativity, you know, there are a ton of painters out there that are not great painters, but paint for the process. And the process teaches them something. So one of the things I run a grief and loss writing workshop and people share their writing with me sometimes, you know, all the time. I have some 
stunningly gorgeous writers. I mean, just, I can't believe that they're not already publishing their words in all the places. And I have some people who are writing and they're just really plunking through to come to get to know their narrative and their story better. But that process oriented is exactly that, which is I will come to a deeper level of understanding if I get a chance to sort of thread through it in this way, whether it's my sense of loss about myself and I, or, or whether it's about how to solve a problem. And, you know, I'm not here to be on a soapbox about how businesses should be run, but I do know that when I'm working with women, part of what I'm doing is giving them a safe space for 50 minutes in my office to do that exact thing, that there isn't always enough space in other. And I know there are leaders of organizations right now that are like, nope, we have a weekend workshop. We do it right. We always do it right. And all I would say is, you know, be curious about what, what right means and be curious about whether or not there are more people in your workspace who could grow into leadership positions and not have to feel like they were doing that as the Xena warrior princess, you know, going in with all their armor on because there was more acceptance of the actual belief that the processing is good for all of us. It makes complete sense. Cause I feel like one thing when you were asking me, you know, why not quit? I often get motivated by who I don't see around me. Yeah. You know, I don't see black, brown women or men in my industry. I don't, you know, it's just, it's so homogenous and, you know, we, we can talk about trying to get individuals even on like myself into leadership. And yet they're not even there to begin with. They dropped out. Like I have friends from grad school who are in my field who just literally just said they, it wasn't viable for them. It wasn't a safe space. There was extreme amounts of prejudice. They were sexualized. There was all sorts of horrific things happening to them and they just didn't even make it past, you know, year one. And so, yeah, that motivates me and that, that makes a, a ton of sense because I think it's right now there feels like there's sort of a trend, you know, like let's put more women on our boards. Let's, you know, let's find, you know, a, a black speaker for this event. And that's great. I'm, I'm here for that. But I also feel like if we're not looking systemically at like, how do we even get more people in the field to begin with and give them paths to, you know, maybe they don't want to be a leader and that's fine, you know, but paths to their version of success. I think, I think we're not really addressing true change at all. I think yeah. we're, we're just, you know, it's cosmetic. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it goes to, you know, you and I had this conversation off mic in the beginning about, uh, I, I'm not even sure where it started, but we were talking about how, you know, our children and their impression of what the world looks like is so different. I remember being in high school at an assembly and an alum coming back and saying that they were gay and handing out pins that had rainbows on them. And that being really the first time in my entire life, I had ever wondered if any of my friends might be gay. I mean, I had already sort of settled on my own sexuality, but I really had just never wondered about the sexuality of others, what they were, this person was describing, how difficult it was to be at a boarding school and not have any representation. And that was why they wanted to be there you know, that is not going to be a problem in my children's lives. I just took them to Target. Target has all the rainbow everything. My kids have all the rainbow everything. They love books that have representation. They are constantly asking questions that I don't necessarily know the answer to because the language is changing. And so we're looking things up. And what I say to them all the time is you guys are so lucky 
that you get to think about these things and wonder about these things because in wondering and thinking, you're just moving over and making more room for people to sit down. And that's a really beautiful thing as a parent to watch and sort of say like, I'm not doing that. Maybe I'm not even the one that's driving it. I'm definitely making room for it. And God, I want the room. But I think when we're thinking about leadership positions and there are, you know, people who are much more skilled to talk about this than me, but it's not just about the representation. It's not just about having a woman in the room. It's about moving over so that they're comfortable to sit down and what, you know, kind of whatever that takes. But the, but the, but it is very interesting and suspicious to me that you are saying, look, there just aren't that many. Because that feels like to me, ah, God, are people out there wondering why that feels aggressive? That feels like maybe we're closing doors, not just not opening them. So I think part of that, part of the gift of this conversation is that people can wonder about that for themselves. But I also think knowing that, that you are experiencing all the grief and loss and sadness and heaviness around it not quite being the place, you know, you don't get that at work, but that's what you're fighting for, right? I mean, you're you're trying to carve that out so that people just feel totally entitled and comfortable to come and sit in the seat. Come sit down. That's what we've been that's what we've been pushing for. Yeah, and also help those who are my peers in terms of responsibility and the types of roles they have to actually have a plan around it. I think that's one of the things that I'm seeing, and I realize it because I'm in the room and in these spaces, I'm trying to use my access to these spaces to try and push a better dialogue because uh, frankly, I think some people literally, and I don't want to say it's a majority, but it very well maybe are just looking for stats. Like I X number of women on my team, like no, no understanding of why or what the benefits are or putting in any of the the training or the, frankly, the culture needed internally in a company to support that. And, and that's just for, for women. I mean, that's not even getting close to BIPOC or LGBTQIA. I mean, I'm, I'm struck often by the thoughtlessness of it. Yeah. 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 That's right. I mean, if it doesn't affect you, it's easy to forget to include it, right. If it doesn't affect you. And I, and I feel like maybe this is um, too abstract or, but I sometimes do feel like the grief around the people who, who didn't even get to where I am, even if it was a few years ahead of me. I mean, there, there's a, there's momentum gaining and I'm trying to make sure to not only be a part of it, but to amplify it and, and to work with people's openness. But yeah, there's, there's a bit of the sense of, of loss of those that, that didn't, you know, that had to take a, a left turn in their career or, or didn't even go, you know, pursue that the job application to start with for something that they maybe really wanted to do. Um, and I don't know if that's too sentimental, but, but I, I do know, or, that. or had a therapist that encouraged them for their own mental health to quit. Right. I mean, that's the, that's that weird inside space that I balance up against, you know, when people are saying for the good of the country and the culture versus the good of me as an individual. And that's a larger sort of existential thing. We obviously need people who can get into those spaces and be there, even though they're tough and hard. And for some people, those tough and hards are destructive and are going to destroy their life. And for other people, it means I downregulate the energy, I paint, I sing, I move through the grief, and then I transform it somehow. I create a network of people. I mentor somebody else. I talk about it on a podcast, but I do something so that it doesn't tattoo me in a way where I feel 
less than. I, I really honestly am so grateful for this conversation because I think these are the kinds of things that people take as smaller hits all the time, all day long without the language or maybe even the permission to say, this is what's hard about this. My, one of my dearest friends, Crystal, who I've known forever, who was my first podcast guest. And we got a lot of feedback about that. It's still our most listened to episode. I mean, mostly because I just adore her and love her. And she's been part of my really genuinely a part of my grief journey and my healing since the beginning, but we've also known each other since we were babies. She and I intentionally do trainings together. And I now know because she has taught me this, you know, I'm a white woman. I walk into a room. There are a lot of other white women. I don't think about it. She has taught me to clock the fact that she's going to be one of two black women in the room. And you know what? I'm one of 80 white women in the room. So that means if I want to make a friend, no problem. I have 79 other people to choose from. Like there are two black women in the room. If she wants to bond with someone in that relaxed way, she's got one person. What if that person's a jerk? What if they don't have the same kind of, and I am embarrassed to say how often I just assumed her experience was similar to my experience and the gift of having someone be able to speak to that, you know, I've seen her speak to that in larger groups. It's so courageous, but it always, always, every single time makes me cry. It makes me cry. And she's not asking me to cry about it, but it does make me cry because there's this intimacy in the, just in the understanding of that is the thing that she didn't ask to carry that she carries everywhere she goes, including in these rooms where everybody's supposed to be all touchy feely and processy. So the naming of it and being able to sort of, you know, own it as your story, there's, I understand why it's not in the tech world. I get it. We're racing to do X, Y, and Z and get there as fast as possible. But I, I share your hope that that is not something that has to be. It might just be pointing it out, 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 you know, over and over. You are coming from your perspective you are forgetting this perspective. I, I actually think you might care about this. The part that I think is harder is when you point it out and then and then it's there and people clearly don't care about it. And then it's like, ah, damn it. You're not who I thought you were. And I'll, maybe this isn't the place I want to sit in. I think that stuff is trickier. And I think that's partly sometimes why we don't ask the questions because we don't want to know the answer. It's actually so great you mentioned that because I, I relate to that because there was... Uh point in my career where I was much more optimistic about certain individuals' willingness to really put in the hard work needed to shift, you know, the tech companies we had access to, to be more inclusive um, and diverse. And it wasn't until exactly what you said, where I really pushed them like, okay, now, now we're the ones in charge. We can do this. Let's have, let's have it happen. And then all of the speak and the talk, that was it. That was the extent of what they were willing to contribute. And it was a reckoning for me. And it was where I was able to step back. And that actually also, frankly, ties into grief because I lost 
not who the people were because I found out who they were. I lost who I thought they were. Yeah. And I thought they had been friends and I thought they'd been advocates for me as a woman in tech. And I realized looking back that, that it was of convenience, right? Because I'm really good at what I do. And I was able to help them gain success through their you know proximity to me and through working with me. And yet when it came to creating access for other women, for people who weren't white, for people who you know weren't straight, that there was a total lack of willingness to actually put in the work. Yeah. And then I realized that, yeah, I, the, the friendship or the, the, the kinship that I thought had been there wasn't there. So it's, it's interesting you bring that up because I, I often don't think of that, but it's made me. And it hurts when you discover it. It's probably just best to kind of stick to my own path on this. And I do, I found amazing individuals, you know, maybe it's only a handful, but who, who are working along this, this similar sort of thread to mine, even if it's not exactly what I'm doing, it's somehow adjacent and helpful and, but yeah, yeah, there's loss in there of people who you think. Well, what it makes me think of is, you know, the the sort of subtitle of this podcast is grieve is a verb. And the idea that it's not just about how you feel, it's the actions involved. How do you help those feelings along? And what I just thought of is like, well, care is a verb too then, isn't it? Because it's very easy to put a, a poster board in your lawn or to have a book discussion about something theoretical, it's different when you're asked to, you know, renegotiate who goes to what school or how public funds are going to be allotted or who sits at the boardroom table or whose voice gets heard, you know, care is also a verb. And so I think it's not, I think some people who seem like they are disenfranchised seem like they're bored or angry it's because that, that, that repetitive lesson of people saying that they care about something is not the same as the action of caring about something. And, you know, I'll get on board when I see the action, but before that, I'm not going to get that fired up. That, that attitude makes a lot of sense to me. I just was thinking about that, that, that part of the grief and loss in those moments is I don't get to be inspired by what you're saying, because it doesn't cost you much to say those things. I will, show up, you know, when you're at the next leg of your, of your relay race, but until you get there, there's no reason for me to believe that you're going to complete it. This has been such a fabulous conversation. Honest to God. I mean, I say it a lot, but I could talk to you all day. We could keep having a conversation tree and I would really love for you to check back in with me and let me know where this conversation lingers and how you notice it. I know what's going to happen is I'm going to go read the New York times and be like, Oh, I should send this to Helkin. So you're going to hear from me. I'm going to be thinking about these things, but just keep me in mind and maybe we'll loop back and just to see how things are, how we're continuing to think about this. Cause this conversation you were the only one to offer it to me. And I feel like I could have it for hours and hours. So I am really grateful for your time today. Well, I'm grateful for it. I feel like I've actually learned quite a bit and it's been nice to put it out loud in conversation with someone. So I really appreciate you giving space for that. And I can only hope it maybe helps someone else too. If people want to reach out and get in contact with you, is there an easy way to do that? Do you have, you know, would it be through email or a company website or what would be the best way? Yeah, I think the the easiest way to find me is on LinkedIn. My first name is very unusual. So yeah. you can just put in Helkin, it's H-E-L-K-I-N. My last name is Berg. And you know, once I connect to someone there, then you have access to my email and you know can can kind of take a conversation. Perfect. I'll put that, I'll put your profile in the 
in the notes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, thank for you. Conversation. I'm really grateful. Yeah. I'm going to have you on my mind and I'm going to have this conversation on my mind for a while. I know it. Well, thank you so much.